Welcome to another episode of the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. And happy April. Wow, it's April already. Uh, Welcome to April. I hope everyone had a great Easter weekend with as many family members as possible. I know there are still restrictions in so many places, but hopefully you were able to have some quality time with family and friends and and were able to carve out uh, some time to relax here as we, we hit the home stretch of this school year. I also want to say happy baseball season. I know I'm probably one of eight people on this planet who still loves baseball and watches baseball regularly. I often say, you know, I don't always love the way Major League Baseball itself operates, but I still love the game. Uh, Growing up, it was my favorite sport, uh, and I absolutely love uh, watching baseball, playing baseball. Uh, It was always one of my favorite things to do. So for me, in order, I, I follow the San Francisco Giants, my favorite team, Uh, Seattle Mariners and the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, I am Canadian after all, Uh, but I'm really excited about baseball season. So uh, you might not be, but but it's what I love to watch and uh, I certainly love following it. I'm also super excited about the guests coming this month. Uh, Today, of course, we have Leanne Young and I'll talk more about that in a moment. But next week is going to be Muhammad Khalifa talking about culturally responsive school leadership. After that, it's Lavana Roth talking about Ignite Your Shine. And then after that, end of the month, it's Catlin Tucker talking about blended learning. So this is going to be a fantastic month on the podcast. I'm really excited about the guests. Uh, Thanks again for listening in again this week. And as I always say, a big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. You're listening and subscribing to the podcast means a lot, and I really do appreciate it. And again, please don't be shy about spreading the word on social media or with your colleagues. So as I said, this week, I'm thrilled to be joined by my friend, Leanne Young. Leanne and I are going to talk about assessment and UDL. In Assessment Corner this week, I'm going to address the topic of the habits of learning and provide some guidelines for schools to think about once they've decided to separate academic achievement from student habits or characteristics. So that is today's plan. We've got a lot to get to. So let's get to it. My interview with Leanne Young is coming up, but first I want to open this week with a little positivity. This week, I'm going to want you to at me, so stay tuned for that. Regular listeners of the podcast know that over the last few weeks, the opening topics have been a little heavy. Not so much negative, but there were some deeper topics. You know, last week I talked about the happiness killer. Prior to that, it was relentless outrage, why we can't be happy for people, Uh, defending or defensive, and we talked about introspection illusion. So it's been a five-week run of some pretty heady topics. And now, look, don't get me wrong. I, I love digging into those meaty topics and exploring all of the different sides of humanity. I'm going to do that today, but I think on a much lighter note. Like I said, last week I talked about the happiness killer, comparison. So this week, I want to talk about the happiness booster. And for me, that's music. Now, a little story time with Tom. (laughs) I feel like I should have some music there or something that says, oh, it's story time. But anyway, story time. About a week and a half ago, I watched this documentary on Amazon Prime about the career of Stevie Nicks, uh, who, of course, was both an accomplished solo artist, but also one of the driving forces in one of my favorite bands, Fleetwood Mac. And the, the doc was called Stevie Nicks Through the Looking Glass. So if you're a fan of the band or of Stevie Nicks, it's definitely worth watching. What was 
a pleasant surprise in the documentary was how much time they spent on the Fleetwood Mac years. They even dug back into, you know, Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham pre-Fleetwood Mac and how they joined the band and everything that unfolded after that, including the turmoil, the reunions, the breakup, the, the show kind of covered everything. Now, my love for all things Fleetwood Mac began in 1977 on my 10th birthday. Now, of course, in February of 1977, that was the year and the month that Rumors, Fleetwood Mac's masterpiece, was released. And I turned 10 in November of that year. And so one of my friends on my 10th birthday gave me the Rumors album as a birthday gift. It was actually my very first album. Now, of course, we had other albums in the house, but all of them were either my parents or my sisters. You know, for my mom, she had just this whole host of like classical records, uh, Mozart, Beethoven, and also opera. My mom was really into opera, uh, which made things interesting at times. <laughs> for my dad, it was Nat King Cole. And for both my mom and dad, uh, they shared a love uh, for Ella Fitzgerald. And a side note, um, Ella Fitzgerald singing in a Cole Porter songbook uh, is still uh, one of my favorite albums of all time. I absolutely love uh, Ella Fitzgerald. For my sister, it was some of the modern artists, of course, like Elton John. And uh, in 1977, of course, a lot of the funk and the disco albums that were emerging in the late 1970s. Now, she's 10 years older than I am. So in October of 1977, she had just turned 20. Uh, she was a dancer. So the disco craze kind of hit her full force right at the right time. Now, most of you know, but some of you might not, depends on how old you are, that um, music wasn't as readily available the way it is today. Now, if they didn't play the songs on the radio, you never heard it. Concerts were definitely more epic because that was probably the only time you might actually see the singer or the band that you loved. It just, everything was more scarce back then, right? There was no YouTube, there were no clips, there, were no, there was no videotape, there was nothing like that going on. So having an album that was mine, that, that I could call my own, that, that was kind of a big deal when I turned 10. And I wore that album out. Rolling Stone magazine called Rumors the number seven album of all time. Uh, but at the same time, at the, in 1977, no one really knew what the legend of Rumors would become. I mean, don't get me wrong. I loved that album from the get-go. But I'm just saying that at the time, like, like so many things, when it's happening in real time, you don't really realize what it is. It's not until long after um, when, when you start to realize how epic it is. Okay, so, so I watched this documentary about Stevie Nicks and Fleetwood Mac, so it's fresh in my mind. So the next day I hit the gym. Okay, that's, <laughs> I'm not trying to flex here. It's just, that's what happened. Okay, the next day I hit the gym. And that day I was going to ride the bike uh, for an hour. We only get an hour appointment at the gym right now due to COVID. And I thought, you know, every Sunday I, I ride the bike for an hour. Now, why do I ride the bike for an hour? Well, because each year in the late winter and the early spring, I have this unbridled optimism about getting into decent mountain biking shape. Uh, all of my close friends mountain bike, and they do it a lot more than I do. So I think to myself, I have to get in better shape so when we go camping or when we hang out, I, I can keep up in the odd times that I do go biking with them. Now, FYI, 
that uh, unbridled optimism uh, hasn't worked so far in any year, but every year is a new year. So that optimism returns every year uh, in the spring. Okay, so so with the documentary fresh in my mind, I think to myself, you know, I actually haven't listened to rumors in a long time. So I'm going to throw it on during my, my workout, during my ride. Now, again, some listeners may not realize that given the way modern music is delivered and sort of all of the different features we have, you may not realize or remember that there is a difference between listening to the songs of an album and listening to the album, right? Listening to every song in the order with which they were presented. When you look at rumors, for example, on Spotify or Apple Music, you know, The Chain, which is definitely one of my favorite songs, is song number six. No big deal, right? But on the album, it's song number one on the B side. So you finish side A with the melodic songbird, you flip the album over, and bam, it's listen to the wind blow, watch the sunrise. The chain builds to a B-side burst that sends you through another epic five-song run on the B-side of Rumors, right? And if you don't love me now, you will never love me again, the energy of that song. Yes, the songs are still presented in that order, but I just think there was something about marinating in the completeness of side A while you were flipping the album over to continue the experience. For me, there is not a bad song on Rumors. Now, Fleetwood Mac may not be one of your favorite bands, and of course that's fair, but the quality of all 11 songs for me is unrivaled. Listening to an album was an experience. And look, maybe it is today too, but I just don't know. Like, I don't know if today's artists purposefully uh, sequence songs for a listening experience. Maybe they do. I, I, I just, again, I, I just don't know. So as I'm riding the bike and playing the album, yes, on my phone, no vinyl, <laughs> I found myself just lost in memory. I listened to the songs all the time, and I love them. But there was just something about listening to the album from front to back. No skip, no rewind, no shuffle. Just listening to it all the way through. And that took me right back. And I could feel it. And that's really my point. The feeling was instant. And it was just another reminder of how immediately impactful music can be on shifting our mindset. Like I said, if comparison is the happiness killer, then music is the happiness booster. Now, I know I'm not unique in loving music. Everyone loves music. But I think the reason music is so personal is because there is such a strong association and a personal connection to the songs. A million people could listen to the same song, and you'll hear a million specific memories, a million different circumstances and a million shades of emotion. Music, for me, is an instant mood maker. Whenever I find I'm having feelings of negativity or I have these sort of defeatist feelings, and they happen to everybody, I know music is the answer. As I've talked about before, your feelings are really a reflection of what your predominant thoughts have been. So if you want to change how you feel, you have to change what you're thinking. And I don't think there is anything that changes your thoughts more rapidly than music. It's almost instant. 
And when you instantly change your thoughts, you instantly change the way you feel. I think that is the organic nature of music. It's primal. It changes our thoughts, our feelings. You know, when we sing and we dance and we close our eyes and we immerse ourselves in that momentary escape. The magic of music is that you can travel back. You can travel back through a lifetime of memories. You can travel forward by taking the feelings that the music produces and fusing them with the anticipation of a moment. You know, a big game, a job interview, or an exciting opportunity, something to get you energized or hyped up about what lies ahead. That was a big part for me and a big role that music played when I played sports. So you can travel back, you can travel forward, or you can travel to the now. We often spend a lot of our mental energy in the past through feelings of you know regret or guilt, or we spend a lot of time in the future through feelings like worry. A good song or a series of songs can bring you back to the moment. I know it sounds cliche, but living in the now is a fast track to feeling good, to feeling happy. And music can do that for all of us. For me, one of those albums is definitely Rumors. What's yours? This is where I want you to at me. What's that album for you? What's that song for you? Hit me up on Twitter, Instagram. What is the song or what is the album that instantly makes your mood, that instantly brings you happiness, that instantly boosts you to a place of complete 180 in terms of how you're feeling. Think of an album. You know, maybe one when you were young. Maybe one you haven't listened to in a long time. And figure out when you have an extended period of time. Going on a long drive, maybe hitting the gym, you, you know you're going to be home alone, something like that. Put that album on. And again, no skips, no rewinds, no shuffle. Put that album on and lose yourself in the feelings and the memories that come rushing back to you. You're welcome. Joining me today for the interview is Dr. Leanne Young. Leanne is the CEO of Lead Inclusion. She is a clinical professor at San Diego State University, and she is a consultant to schools around the world. She provides support to schools in the areas of universal design for learning. That's going to be our topic today, but also inclusion, intervention, mastery-based assessment, and grading. And before beginning her career uh, in higher education, Leanne worked in special education as both a teacher and administrator. Leanne has authored six books and more than 50 journal articles and book chapters. So I'm really excited to have someone here who I consider a dear friend, but also an educator for whom I could not have more respect for. So Leanne, I love having you here. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here today. It's, it's great to have you here. I was just uh, thinking before we got started that the last time we hung out was the uh, Ear Coast Conference in Malaysia in 2019. So it's been a while since we've uh, been able to hang out. So this is a good excuse for yeah. us to have a conversation. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. Okay, so we're going to dig into UDL. And uh, listeners will recall that back in January, I had Katie Novak on, uh, on my podcast talking about UDL. But today, Leanne and I are going to focus on the assessment side of UDL and really dig into that sort of concept. So let's begin with um, the foundation. 
of, of our conversation today, UDL. So l- let me set the scene. You're at a conference, and of course, the conference will be post-COVID. Uh, you're at a conference. It's the end of the day. You get into the hotel elevator. Uh, in walks somebody who's not attending the conference. They get into the elevator. They push the number four. They're going up four floors. They turn and look at you, and they see your badge, and it says UDL. And they say to you, hmm, UDL, what's that? And you have four floors to tell them. How do you answer them? Um, so universal design for learning is a lot like the curb cuts that we see around us in our, in our environment. We see these ramps that go from the sidewalks to the streets. And those sidewalk curb cuts, they're necessary for people who use wheelchairs. People who use wheelchairs, they can't get around town without these curb cuts. But those curb cuts also help parents who are pushing strollers. They help delivery um, delivery people who are carrying carts. They help people who are using roller skates, really anything with wheels. And we can think of all kinds of other scenarios where those curb cuts help people, not just those who use wheelchairs. And universal design for learning in our classrooms are like the curb cuts. It's all of those things that that we maybe once reserved for special education, but we're bringing them into our everyday classrooms so they help not only students who have IEPs, but they help lots of other students too. It's, I love that idea of, of curb cuts. Uh, I think it's such a great visual and, and, and makes so much sense. And it's so interesting how so many of the things that are helpful to support uh, learners who need it are helpful to all learners. And that there are you know, aspects that we often think about. What, why do you think that we have this tendency uh, to, to silo uh, support or silo, uh, you know, the way that we design our instruction, you know, this is for everybody and this is for those who need it. Why, why do we seem to have this habit? I don't know how ubiquitous that habit is, but it's enough to notice that we seem to always compartmentalize instead of expanding. Why do you think that happens? You know, I think some of it is, it comes from a place of the field somewhat emerging separately. So, you know, in the seventies, when in the United States, uh, the field of special education really took off. Uh, in, in many ways, it developed its own literature base, its own set of methods. If you look at colleges and universities, the departments of special education are separate from the departments of curriculum and instruction often. And so here we've prepared educators separately. And you know, often when we go into schools and you know, you ask a principal about you know, what's going on with special education or how data are used or how intervention is delivered, they'll often direct you immediately to the special ed coordinator. Um, and, and the right. same happens if we, if we talk to teachers, talk to the, you know, talk to the special educator. Um, and it's not from a place of not wanting to serve all students. And it's not from a place of not wanting to, you know, not caring for all students. I think sometimes it comes from a place of feeling I don't have the expertise. I feel this person has the expertise. And so sometimes we hear things like, you know, design this accommodation or design a modification, please, for my student. And it's um, or take the student and deliver an intervention, take the student out of the classroom. And many times these requests are coming from a place of I'm not sure what to do. Yeah, I, I think that's a it's an interesting observation because I, I think that 
the this and and it was it would not be my intent to suggest that the this the siloing of of these topics is necessarily cynical but yeah i think i think you're onto something there when it comes to the the notion of hesitancy you know teachers teachers want to do right by students and they and they and they hesitate for the right reasons and therefore look to experts to help guide uh, the decisions they make. So before we dig into the assessment side of UDL, um, what do you think are some of the most common misunderstandings of UDL and how can we proactively prevent those misunderstandings from emerging in the first place? You know, I think I think the most common misunderstanding is, is related to what you just had to say about um, kind of the siloed mm. approach to services sometimes. And that is People sometimes think of universal design for learning as being a special education solution, as being a solution to support those students who have labels, who have ILPs or IEPs, rather than this is a general education solution. This is, this is something for all students. Um, how do we prevent that from being a misunderstanding? Um, I, I think there are a number, a number of ways maybe to tackle that. Uh, I know you you conduct a lot of professional learning experiences and courses, and I do as well. And and sometimes we see the population of people attending the professional learning for UDL is all special educators, or it's all people who are um, serving serving students who have IEPs or reading specialists or speech therapists or so forth. And the the information and the support and the coaching and so forth has to be a whole school effort rather than an effort um, aimed directly at the specialists. Yeah. Do you do you then see then that that for principals and and even district leaders it it is you know important to be purposeful about who has access to those trainings at at sort of the first instance. I think sometimes principals might think to themselves, well if I send my uh, special education staff or if I send my student services staff, there'll be a kind of trickle down support that happens to to the the general education staff and and that can happen but i'm not sure it always happens so i wonder if one of the answers might be uh, for principals and and superintendents and directors to to give a, another thought about who attends those events and who has the first interface with the professional learning experience thoughts on that yeah exactly and you know if it's a team effort to implement udl then sending teams of people rather than one part of the team and expecting them to speak for everyone and, and to, to process it for everyone. You know, UDL assumes that everyone on the team has expertise. Everyone in the building has expertise. New teacher, seasoned teacher, special educator, classroom teacher, leader, counselor, everyone has expertise, something to contribute um, to the design. And so bringing them together to to co-design and, and learn, learn the process of co-designing is important. I think another linchpin of this is, is really understanding the false dichotomy of disability, hmm. meaning that really as a remnant of U.S. law from the 1970s, people all over the world think about disability as something you either have or you don't. It's dichotomous. You've got it or you don't. And we've drawn these hard and fast lines, but, but those hard and fast lines that we draw are, are fake. They're, they're not real. <laughs> they, are, they exist because of old funding structures. We had to say 
We had to say who qualified for an IEP. Therefore, we have definitions of autism spectrum disorder, of intellectual disability, of specific learning disability, and you either have it or you don't. But that's not the way that needs work. That's the way that labels work. It's the way that rights work. So if you have a label, you have specials. But students who have labels don't necessarily have special needs. For every student who qualifies and has a label of learning disability, there are more students who didn't quite qualify, but have the exact same need. There are numerous students who have trouble learning to read. Some of those have a neurological explanation for that. They have a specific learning disability, they have dyslexia. But many students, most students who are having difficulty learning to read don't have dyslexia. They don't have a neurological explanation or something else. It's it's interesting you mentioned that because I, I remember you know years ago uh, just working in schools where you know the the one of the most challenging groups to support and we did everything we could we thought I mean we probably would would do a more effective job today knowing what we know about UDL but it was those students who didn't quite qualify they they fell short and I remember those conversations you know they don't technically qualify as learning disabled but that doesn't change their situation or circumstance or their needs. And we had to, you know, you have to scrape together, figuratively scrape together ways to support those students because the supplemental funding is not there and because the personnel is not there and because there are so many rules around that. I think that's such an important point to think about the the, the funding structures and, and the model for that. Um, and it is a challenge. It is a challenge for schools uh, and a challenge to support students. And it seems to me that the, the, that UDL is an answer for that about how we can, again, expand the kind of support that's available to students. It, it really is. And unfortunately in 2004 with the reauthorization in the US of the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, mm -hmm. um, this idea of RTI, MTSS, of a tiered approach to serving students based on their needs, not their labels, right. entered the picture. And so right. there've been some doors open for us with that. Yeah, I think that was a real pivotal moment in terms of, uh, because like you say, I think it, it, it brought the notion of needs to the masses, and now it became uh, a needs-driven framework as opposed to a, a funding-driven. I mean, the funding is still a part of the school system, and it is part of what happens in, as far as um, identification and labeling, but the focus of and the energy of the school is more around uh, mm -hmm. support and, and needs and all of that. I, 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 I love that, that pivot point. So from your perspective is, um, is UDL, uh, an important key to creating real equity and inclusion in schools? Is that, is that where UDL can really sort of show its strength is, is how we create these inclusive, equitable kinds of, of, of cultures? Absolutely. Um, you know, as we think about a tiered approach to services, you know, as schools take on MTSS and RTII or RTI squared, you know, <laughs> a lot of times the effort gets focused in the intervention and how we'll take data and deliver intervention. And certainly those are essential components of a tiered approach to services or tiered approach to instruction and intervention. But the first tier of that tiered approach is universal design for learning. It is the universal tier, it's what everyone gets. And without intentional effort to the universal tier to bring equity 
to the universal tier, none of the rest of a tiered approach can be built upon it. None of the, none of the rest works because, Mm -hmm. you know, if, if we don't have a solid use of UDL in our tier one instruction, then we're going to be just really working so hard to, to provide intervention to numerous students who could have been effectively served within the universal tier and never needed intervention. Yeah. So it's, it's trying to push more of that to the front end and make it uh, an integral part of our day-to-day design so that we need less um, special accommodations and modifications. You know, it's something that I know you talk about and I talk about with schools uh, on a weekly basis, which is, you know, each tier is subsequently more labor intensive. And and so the payoff is investing in those tier one support structures, universal systems, whether they be on a behavioral side of the ledger or the academic side of the ledger. And and we know that's just a a construct because we're dealing with a whole child. Uh, But the point is that I think sometimes schools instead of spending so much time talking about their intervention structures before making sure that that tier one is in place, because you've, you, when you figuratively pull kids down the, the framework or the structure of the pyramid, you're, you have more time because the minutes are the minutes and you have more time for tier two and tier three interventions if you invest in those universal interventions. And to me, it seems UDL is that, that perfect way to at least try to catch figuratively, again, catch as many students as you can effectively the first time, rather than having to react to where they are. So it's, it's definitely, uh, yeah. Well, well articulated. That's, you know, it's just, you're getting return on your investment. Right, right. Yeah. I just find that people want to jump to tier two or they want to jump to tier three. And, and, and each of those tiers is a lot more involved, a lot more work. There's a lot more monitoring. There's, it's just a, a frequency issue and an efficiency issue. And, and, and therefore, as you said, when you are ineffective at, you know, if, if, our, if our tier one is not uh, maximizing its effectiveness, then you figuratively push kids up the triangle or the pyramid, if you will. And yeah. now you have the volume in tier two that that you, you know, schools don't have the capacity necessarily to even support. So, yeah. If you have half of the students needing a tier two or tier three level of intervention, you've got a tier one challenge to solve, not a tier exactly. two or three challenge to solve. Exactly. You know, and I, I've heard that for years and I know you have as well, which is, oh, Tom, you don't understand, you know, 15, 20% of our kids are in tier three. And right away, that's a tier one issue for sure, because it's just, it, it really shouldn't play out that way in, in most. Um, school context. So I know that listeners thinking about UDL, I can hear uh, many of them sort of thinking and, uh, you know, I've actually heard some folks uh, say this to me as well. Okay, Tom, I, you know, or, or Leanne, I, I, I get it, multiple pathways, uh, multiple means for students to demonstrate their learning. I get that. How in the world do I assess that with all of these different pathways ways, and all of these different means? So let's, let's look at assessment in UDL from a, a tight and loose uh, perspective, okay? okay? So when it comes to assessment, what, within the UDL framework, what needs to be tight and, and what, what can we be loose about? Right, right. Um, well, UDL is all about being loose. It's all about finding the places where you can offer choice and and really, um, and give students um, options for how they how they show what they've learned the best, how they can shine. 
but it doesn't mean we're completely loose. We have to be tight, as you say, on what it is we're trying to measure or what it is we're trying to teach. So we have to know what it is we're teaching. This, this, this piece involves that we distinguish what it is we're measuring, the construct we're measuring from the task. Mm -hmm. And the task is what we can be loose on. The construct, what it is we're trying to teach is what we're tight on. So we want to make sure we're measuring something that matters. We want to make sure we've chosen, you know, standards and skills and understandings that are transferable, that are life-changing, that are gateways, you know, that keep doors open for kids. And we want to focus a lot of effort on teaching those skills and measuring those. But let's take, let's take, for example, um, um, supporting a claim with evidence. So that's a, that's a skill that a lot of teachers are working on, on with their students is how to, how to make a claim and evaluate the relative sources of evidence, make a judgment on that and support your claim with um, evidence. And it may be that any given teacher may have assigned a research paper in the past for this, this is how you're gonna show me you've gained that skill. But that's only one of an infinite number of ways that students can show that they've gained that skill. So what are we tied on? Whatever our requirements are for uh, students showing that they have um, the ability to support a claim with evidence, you know, whether it's, you know, however many sources you want them to bring in, what types of sources you want them to bring in, how you want them to integrate it, how you want them to um, present this, all of that is tight. But whether it's done through Zoom, whether it's done live, whether it's done as a presentation, whether it's done as a traditional research paper or a debate or a, a mock newscast or on and on and on, all of the ways students can show that can be flexible. And, and this isn't just about um, students' preferences. It's not just about make sure students are interested and engaged, those, those are important components, but this is truly about equity. Mm -hmm. If we think about the ways that um, any of us can engage with a group and teach, we all have preferences, um, but sometimes those ways of showing, those ways of teaching are not only not our preferred way, but they can get in the way of our being able to perform well. So I've seen you present adeptly in front of <laughs> thousands of people. You have no problem with this, right? Like you, you're fine with this. You shine in that way. You're able to clearly articulate and guide a, guide a group. But for some people, speaking in front of 5,000 people would absolutely impact their performance. Would it make them less of an expert? less less knowledgeable in, in their area, it, within their craft, not at all. It just means that way, if we were to assess them in that way, would not be a valid way to assess their performance. So if everybody had to present what they knew in front of 5,000 people, or if that's not intimidating, then on live television to you know, an international audience, if we assess everyone in that way, there's a clear advantage to those who are not affected by that way of performing. For those who are affected though, it creates an inequity. And so within our schools, that's exactly what we're doing when we say everyone has to do it this way. 
right. for those who are whose performance on the skill is affected by this way of showing what they know, they are at a clear disadvantage. And within our grading in, environment, you know, they're 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 harmed. So yeah. there are inequities introduced in this way. Yeah. It, it, how do you how do you when you work with teachers, how do you help them understand the separation? Because I think sometimes um, and not everyone, but but many teachers will sort of look at here's what the learning goal is. Therefore, that's how I have to assess it or that's how I have to elicit the evidence of learning. So there's an attachment to, as you say, claim evidence reasoning. Therefore, that must be in written form. How do we detach that? How do we, what are some of the specific ways teachers can think about trying to separate the learning goal or the outcome or the standard from the assessment method? Yeah, so, so normally I, I first take teachers through exactly what we just did is to think about, yeah. think about the ways that you perform best and think about the ways that affect you. And then we think about specific students. We think about specific examples of student work you know, let's think through the students in the past who, you know, knew it, you, knew, you know, they had the skill, but they bombed that final. Mm -hmm. You know, what are the external threats to the validity of that measure? What are the outside factors other than they didn't know it that could have gotten in the way? And for many of those students, it's because it was high stakes. It's because it was a final that was going to count a certain percentage of the final grade. It was because... I don't show what I know well on a multiple choice test. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's the format. Every teacher can relate to either having personally experienced this or having had students where you know they knew it mm -hmm. and yet the assessment didn't reflect it. And when you go on this journey and say, you know, and ask the question, in what format would that student have been able to show you? And we can always find a format where that student is able to show. One of, the, one of the pieces here, too, that's important, it's not only separating task from skill or understanding, it's also understanding that formality is not um, an indicator of validity. Hmm. Meaning I can have an informal conversation with a student, and if I'm able to elicit their best performance and they can tell me what they know easily one-on-one -on -one in a conversation, but they can't show it on a test as well. That conversation was more valid, even though it was less formal. Right. You know, and, and, and I 100% subscribe to that. I think the worry that I hear from teachers, and I'd be interested in, in your response, the worry that teachers have when a student answers orally, uh, informally, et cetera, is how do I track that? How do I, uh, it's not tangible. So if I get challenged by a parent, or if I get questioned by my principal about, well, where's the evidence that you say this student is less than proficient or, you know, on, you know, they're developing or approaching, how, how do you, how do you guide teachers in thinking about that aspect of, of assessment? Absolutely. We, we still need to have rubrics. We still have measures. We still have criteria, but those criteria are task agnostic, if you will. So we still have criteria for how this performance looks, but we take out all of the requirements of how many pages it should be and how many references or, you know, you know, mm -hmm. how many references might be a criteria, but exactly, yeah. you know, the format of those references, all of those pieces that make it um, specific to a writing task are removed then from our rubric and our criteria right. there. Right. 
I love that term. Uh, the term I often use is task neutral, but I love the term task agnostic. I, I think that's uh, that sounds more academic. <laughs> I like that. Uh, I want to come back to uh, uh, assessment and performance assessment momentarily, but I want to pivot here a little bit to formative assessment because another source of tension I hear from teachers as we sort of talk about this, you know, progression and UDL and expansive opportunities is this notion that if students are on multiple pathways, okay, so Tom, I get it, um, you know, we're all headed to the same destination, but if the pathways diverge and we're all on different pathways, how in the world do I manage formative assessment? So from your perspective, Leanne, what, what are the most efficient and effective ways for teachers to, again, for lack of a better word, to manage the sort of formative assessment work on the assessment for learning strategies if students are along multiple pathways toward proficiency? Honestly, you know, multiple pathways is a little, is a, you know, it is true that they're using multiple ways to engage with content and, and express what they know and are able to do and understand, but they still are all on the same pathway. Our feedback um, our feedback largely is, is organized in the same way. Our, the way that we track student progress largely in the same way, as long as our rubrics and our criteria are removing the requirements of the task. So um, in terms of, of just managing this almost from a bookkeeping standpoint, you know, of, of keeping track of this in a grade book, we can still do that. Um, and in terms of, um, of managing, you know, how we're, we're guiding students, it really is in the same way, just with the lens of different um, means of showing what they know. The, yeah, yeah, it, it's the, it's the, the, the looseness of opportunity, but it seems that I think the misunderstanding sometimes emerges when we're not purposeful about, you know, certain steps along the way, the benchmarks, the learning progression, uh, how we get to criteria, the rubrics, all of that. I think you've, you've, you've articulated that incredibly well, which is we just, we still have to be very focused on, on what we're learning, what the students are learning, what we're measuring and, and create the opportunities for students around that, but still stay focused on, on that pathway. And I think the misunderstanding often comes from this notion of this expansive view of learning feels like, um, you know, the Wild West where, oh, the students can just do whatever they feel like doing as opposed to being very intentional about the learning opportunities. Would, would that be a fair sort of a, a, a assertion that sometimes that misunderstanding is that it's just this loose kind of do what you want kind of approach and that's not really the case? Yeah. That, absolutely. Absolutely. It, 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 there's nothing about the learning progressions that changed or the, the nature of our feedback or mm -hmm. the nature of even keeping track of this. Uh, the looseness is simply in the method in which students interact and act and express. Right. Now, it seems to me that that coming back to sort of the the end point, if you will, the the expansiveness of UDL seems to create more opportunities naturally to encourage authentic, relevant uh, performance assessment, performance tasks, etc. So, what for you are the key aspects that teachers should think about? when they're trying to design performance tasks or performance assessments that actually rise to the level 
of, of the promise of UDL, because, you know, the reason I asked the question is a lot of times teachers will design what they call performance tasks, but they really are superficial. They aren't getting to the deeper understanding. So for you, what are some of the keys that teachers need to think about when designing those authentic assessments? Right. Well, you know, having your learning progression, knowing what your target is up front and making sure you're completely focused on that, of course, is, is number one in any, in any assessment design. Um, but not giving choice for giving choice. It's giving choice of ways that students can show what they know by itself is engaging, but in giving those choices to be thinking about what are the confounding variables? What are, what are the pieces that are getting in the way of my being able to measure with validity what students know and are, and are able to do? So if I take a look at that final exam you know, that I normally gave, and I see that, um, you know, for a lot of students, the confounding variable is being timed. It's that it's multiple choice. Or in this research paper, the confounding variable for many of my students is writing, that they, that they can express themselves better verbally. It's, it's on purpose thinking through what got in the way of your students being able to show what they know and offering options that respond to that. So offering options that are intentionally removing um, what we would call the confounding variables. So if you're, you're trying to measure a student's um, skills in science, but the way that you've tested is getting in the way of their showing what they know, that's a confounding variable that right. your test or your assessment has introduced. So, so that would so, be an important component. Right. So would it be... Um... Would, would, a, would a process for that for a teacher maybe be, okay, what is the standard or what are the standards I'm assessing? And does that standard sort of dictate or drive the, the method? For example, writing standards, right? There, there, there's, in many cases, not as many opportunities to expand the format because students are writing, uh, because it is a writing standard. So are my choices getting in the way of my ability to know deeply what the student understands. Is that, is that something that we should think about is, is that teachers should think about is, 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 is there a connection between my method and the standard? And if not, what are the other opportunities that can help mitigate those confounding factors? Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Tom. And, and, yeah. and even when you're, when you're assessing writing, yes, you're, you are limited to um, expressing via writing, but all of the other options are available. It doesn't have to be a five paragraph essay. No author out there writes a five paragraph essay. <laughs> there are an infinite number of ways to write. Um, if, you know, if students enjoy getting creative, um, if they enjoy technology, if they, um, you know, if they enjoy a more formal versus informal style, there are so many options even within the confounds that I have to show writing, uh, that there are still an, an infinite number of options. That's of the only piece that is fixed. Right. Everything right. else is flexed. Right. So it narrows the choices, but we certainly still have, and I think this is where for a lot of folks, it's the difference between the method and the format. 
And I think for, for many of us, we, we, we conflate the two and we think, well, it's a constructed response. Uh, it lends itself to that. It's a writing standard. Therefore, they have to do it in this very narrow way. And I think what you're suggesting is, and I, and I would subscribe to this, is the idea that within that method, there are many different formats that that writing could take on. And yes, I haven't written a five paragraph essay since uh, maybe freshman year of university, or I don't know, <laughs> the last time I did that was <laughs> my right. Lord of the Flies essay from uh, 10th grade. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But you can find students who enjoy blogging or enjoy, you know, engaging in a more informal maybe in a way that's more relevant to their current life and their current experiences and their current culture. And, you know, all, all of these pieces can be taken into account when we're giving ideas for choices and, and asking students, what are their ideas? You know, mentoring them, they'll, they'll come up with right. better ideas than we will of, of yeah. how they can show what they know. What about the teacher that's maybe overwhelmed? They, they think to themselves, you know, Leanne, I, I really want to offer these, these multiple opportunities for students, but I'm intimidated by that. I, I don't know. So I don't know how to manage that. I, I, I really have the desire. I have the willingness. I don't feel like I have the capacity. So how, how, do you, how do you respond to a teacher who might say that to you? Yeah, I mean, UDL, the UDL framework includes a lot of components and, and that's a common response is how do I implement all of this at one time? And even within the assessment piece, even with what we're talking about, I would suggest people pick one assignment one project, one test, you know, one task that they've given in the past or they're planning to give in the future mm -hmm. and think of one alternate, <laughs> yeah. you know, give students two choices and, and, and see how that goes. See what you learn from that. See what your students learn from that. See what the implications are. Um, right. but take off, take one piece and give two options. So while it is a uh, it is a cliche, it is true when it comes to UDL. Think big, but start small, Absolutely. and and ease easier way into it. Uh, okay, so let's finish up our conversation about uh, UDL and and focus now. Turn the lens around and focus on the students. Um, it it seems to me that UDL would be very conducive to creating more metacognitive opportunities for students and allowing students to be more self-regulatory about their learning. Uh, am I right about that? And if so, uh, what are some of the specifics that help us create that kind of context for students? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's a big part of the purpose of universal design for learning. The whole principle of, of multiple means for engagement is, is all around um, helping to support learners to be more self-directed and um, be more self-regulated and um, have the skills to cope when the learning is hard, have, have skills to, um, to, to, to be motivated and to engage, um, to self-assess so that, mm -hmm. so that they're, I mean, all of us who are talking about assessment are always, you know, are always saying we need to do more assessment with students than to students. And, and this is, this is a big part of why is because by the time students get into college, they're going to have to assess their own learning. They're going to have to decide on their own with, um, when they go see a professor for additional support or what they need to engage in more, how they direct their own learning. And so we need to over time be releasing more of that role to students and prepare them to be able to do so. So universal design for learning it involves teaching students how to set their own goals, teaching students how to assess their own learning, 
being engaged in how they learn best, how they cope best, how they build persistence. Um, and, and so each of the checkpoints within the Universal Design for Learning framework um, offers a piece of, of building this self-regulation. Yeah, it, it, is, it, it continues, I think, to be a, a, a source of tension for, for all educators, which is we know that students being metacognitive is such an effective, not just, uh, not just a, an effective opportunity to be more self-regulatory, but it deepens their learning. And yet teachers always f- struggle to find the time and, and struggle to, to create those opportunities, right? I know it's important, but I struggle to find the time to create those opportunities. Do you have any suggestions for teachers as to how they can, again, sort of the, the, under the idea of think big, start small, where might be an entry point for teachers to just begin bringing more metacognition, more self-regulation of learning into their classroom? Where, where are some of the points where they might be able to see some early success and realize the benefit and the value of that opportunity for students? Yeah, you know, um, I can understand how, you know, saying we're going to carve time out to teach these skills might be overwhelming. But when we build routines mm-hmm. within, our, within, our, within our day where students are, are used to, you know, the routine that the teacher has established to pause and think in this way or reflect in this way um, about their learning and what they need to build some awareness of, you know, their own coping and their own strategies. Um, you know, yes, there's a little bit of an investment on the front end to teach some of the strategies explicitly and, and to teach the routine. But then once that's in place, it's very easy throughout the day to infuse um, these thinking and reflecting routines so that students are continually um, um, reflecting on their own learning and thinking about their own thinking and 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 how they and how they learn and grow best. Over time, the goal is that we're not needing to prompt that so much, but investing that early on, not waiting until high school, but investing in early childhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen beautiful examples of students who, you know, walk up to a wall where there are examples of work and are able to say, this is where I am now, and this is what I'm working on next. And mm-hmm. that's our goal. <laughs> we yeah. want even tiny kids to know where they're going. And and to have some thoughts about how they learn and how they learn best and what they need from their environment and the people in their environment to be yeah. successful. It's, it's all of those things. It's the empowerment, it's the agency, it's the, uh, the self-regulation, it's the uh, driving my own learning. And I think your, your point about you know, 12, 13 years later or even longer when, they, when students enter the university or college environment and they are on their own more often, They're, they go to class fewer hours a week, they, that that level of advocacy and understanding of self, I think, is such a critical part of being successful at, at that, that next level. I think during the pandemic, we realized that we have been, um, that we have an opportunity. Right. Because, the, you know, during the time of home, home learning, when students were not in an environment where we were regulating them all day and right. telling And then they went home where we were with them portions of the day, but then they had to regulate their own learning and manage their own time. We saw there were big gaps. So I I think it's apparent that we've, um, that that's a a great opportunity we have to to support students. Yeah. What what, I can't give them their marching orders for, 
for seven hours a day, what do we do? And and that the, certainly, I think the uh, we've talked with many guests over the, uh, the last year or so uh, on the podcast about just the, the the small silver linings that have come out of of COVID. And certainly, we're not no one's happy that this has occurred, but we are learning some things about schools, okay. about teaching, about learning things that you know what constitutes authentic evidence, you know, how much evidence is necessary. What is it that we we actually are asking students to do that is meaningful, deep, connected? So I think we have learned. Uh, I think we've learned a lot over the last year. Or so if we can, I think that's what we have to do as human beings is just find those silver linings of these these sort of unfortunate circumstances. And the, you know, the pandemic could could not be more unfortunate than than what we're dealing with. It's it's uh, it's changed society completely and, and it has changed schools. So I think finding those silver linings is where we need to go. Now, listeners. Um, I also, I know Leanne probably won't mention it, so I'm going to mention it. Leanne, you are currently in the process of working on a book about UDL. So let's let's talk a little bit about that. Is that true? I am. So I'm working on a book with, with uh, Corwin Press on um, universal design for learning and the focuses on building equity um, and on practical strategies for, for making this happen in, in all classrooms. And that book will be available roughly when? In the winter. In the winter. Okay, so stay tuned for that. Uh, Leanne, we're going to, uh, again, I, I, uh, I always love talking to you. Um, I've learned so much from you over the years about inclusion and support and special education. And just, uh, I think you're a, a tremendous wealth of knowledge. So I'm just going to use my uh, respect and admiration for you to, uh, as an excuse to have you back on the podcast, for sure. Uh, we're going to, we're going to do this again at some point, but right now we're going to pivot a little bit. We've had, you know, a pretty serious discussion about UDL. So we're going to have a little bit of fun here with a segment I call three questions where I'm going to ask you three lighthearted questions. So listeners can get to know Leanne a little bit more on a personal level, uh, not just a professional level. Okay. So here we go. First one, what is your favorite album of all time what do you love to listen to what's that one album that okay i guess um i guess if i'm singing in my car to an old favorite album it it might be janice joplin janice joplin okay yeah it's uh i i i don't know what i expected but i i didn't see that coming uh that's uh, that, that maybe that yeah got those old school uh yeah yeah, or something, something from that era, for sure. Something yeah. from that era. Um, okay, second one. Uh, what is the one non-life-threatening thing that you have an irrational fear of? Oh, that's easy. Oh, it's terrible. Roaches. I'm, I'm just terrified <laughs> of roaches. And it's unfortunate because I love warm places. <laughs> I like to travel to warm places. But... Yeah. Um, yeah, that's my, and it, it's irrational. It's, um, you know, stand on a table and somebody else handle it. It's, it's been embarrassing at times. <laughs> <laughs> it is always interesting where, where you, you look at, you know, whether it's a, a, a cockroach or a, or a tiny little spider or, or, yeah. you know, and, and, and we're up on the chair or we're like, Oh, that's, yeah. and, and the thing is not even as, as big as a penny or you well, know, it's, it's a, yeah. it's a tax size. And, 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 and yet if it only knew the kind of intimidation that it's uh, <laughs> hurling your way. That's good. Now, speaking of irrationality, um, what is something, here's the third one, what is something that you have an irrational obsession with? 
It's one of those things where you're just obsessed with it and no one else can understand it. It's irrational, but nonetheless. I don't know that no one else can understand it, but I'm kind okay. of obsessed with tennis. And mm. yeah, so um, I spend a lot of my free time playing tennis, look okay. for lots of opportunities to play tennis. And the friends that I have who are obsessed, I mean, it, it doesn't matter the what's going on. We're, we're there. That's a boring yeah. answer. But that <laughs> no, that's okay. I mean, that's, it's what you love to do, right? So where did that come from? Did you, did you play tennis as a child? Did you grow up playing tennis or, or was it? I know, you know, where it came from was as a, as a new professor at University of Kentucky years ago, um, I needed an outlet that was not my work. I was too obsessed with my work <laughs> and I needed some non-work, non-mom time. And I sort of fell into it. There's a really great tennis community here. Um, lots of indoor courts. Um, and so we're able to play all year long. And, and so I just found a really great group of friends and, and it's a wonderful sport and it's become, you know, my social circle as well as my, um, you know, as well as my activity, my exercise. Right. That's so, I'm- so you, you, you pick up, it's hard to pick up a sport when you're an adult often, you know, we gravitate as adults to things we were good at when we were children. So can, can I just ask you a little bit about, you know, you, you pick up tennis as an adult, how did you, did you take lessons or did you just keep playing and just improve yourself through, through playing with the group of friends and connect with that team or how did, how did that work for you? Well, you know, actually the kids were taking lessons. And so I, you know, I, I'd like to take a couple, you know, just to see where it goes. And I'm the one who ended up addicted and the kids didn't, but (laughs) but yeah, I mean, fortunately this, the way that it works with, you know, in the U S with USTA is you're paired with people who are your same level Mm. and you, and because, you know, it wouldn't be very fun if you were brand new (laughs) playing against someone, you know, who could really rock it. So, you know, you're paired with those people and then you grow together. And, and before long, you catch up with people who've been doing it for 10, 15 years. It's really, it's really kind of neat how that happens. It it has been interesting how it's, you know, informed my thinking in some ways within, within, you know, growth, growth and, and, and so forth within schools. But, um, yeah, so that that keeps it from being intimidating because you can play with other people who are about your level and so forth. Right, and so the uh, U.S. Open twenty twenty five is that what we're talking about here, uh, Leanne? You're going to enter the <laughs> enter the tournament? Uh, yeah, if I were even so lucky to like buy tickets, <laughs> that's just- right. Yeah, I um, you know, I've I I haven't played a lot of tennis. The the times I have played tennis, I it's 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 I I really like it. Uh, the problem is I, I, I wasn't very good at it and didn't play it frequently enough and 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 hit a level of frustration with it. Just I don't really live in a climate where there's uh, a lot of indoor tennis. And so you, 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 your opportunities to play tennis are sporadic, just, you know, in my younger days. And and uh, but it is a it's a hard sport. And yet you can see the uh, the allure of uh, just the. Yeah. And the, the... yeah, I mean, like. I don't enjoy running. Like I run some, but I don't really enjoy it. And it's like yeah. when you're, for me, when I'm involved in a sport, you kind of forget that you're exercising. So. Right. Absolutely. Uh, okay. So Leanne, we're going to finish uh, the way we have uh, always finished every interview. And that is adding in this element of uh, success and happiness and, and what that means to you listeners. You'll recall last week we, um, did a mashup of how all the guests so far have answered the question around success. And so now we're building 
uh, the next 24 uh, guests to pull together. So um, as you know, uh, we finish with this question about success and happiness. So my question to you, Leanne, is if a random person stopped you on the street and, and asked you, what is your definition of success? How would you answer them? You know, I don't think you can define for any one person what success is. Success is is what makes a person, you know, happy and independent. And one of the one of the pieces of success that I've been really interested in lately is the idea of belonging. You know, I mean, I think for most of us to be truly happy and feel successful, we also need a sense of belonging and to feel like we're a part of something and that we're accepted and that we're valued and that we have worth. And within our field, I I think this is an area that we, that we probably need to devote more effort to and more and more thought to as our roles as our role as educators in in supporting belonging Mm -hmm. of, of our students. You know, I hear, I hear, I talked to a lot of parents of kids who have more significant disabilities, um, sometimes invisible disabilities. And, you know, and they say, you know, it's one thing for my child to be included. They're in the classroom, they're a part, you know, that's going well, but they're not invited to the birthday party. They're not invited to hang out at the mall. And so while I think there are, you know, ways to meet a somewhat counterfeit definition of success, that means, you know, attaining certain types of jobs or a certain level of education. In many ways, none of that matters if we don't also have a sense of belonging. So yeah. to me, um, it's, I wouldn't say it's the only, only part of the definition, but belongingness is, is a piece of success that I'm really interested in right now. Yeah, that's... Um... It's a, it's a really uh, a great point about just how we feel connected to a, a larger group, a larger picture, and we, and our success is driven by our opportunities to be a part of something uh, bigger than us and, uh, and staying connected um, with, with that group as well. It's, it's heartbreaking, those stories you hear about, as you say, I'm included, in the, the students are included in the class, but, um, but not invited to the birthday parties and not invited to hang out at the mall. It's, it's, uh, you know, devastating for a parent. And uh, I can only imagine what that feels like um, for a parent and a child for sure. Uh, Leanne, uh, thanks so much for being here today. Uh, listeners, you can definitely, definitely follow Leanne on Twitter. Her Twitter handle is at uh, Leanne Young. Um, you, that, I'll put the links in the show notes for that. Uh, also, uh, Lead Inclusion on Instagram, at Lead Inclusion. This is a brand new Instagram page. Oh, am I right about that, Leanne? You are correct. My daughter yeah. is our new social media manager, doing a great yeah. job. Yeah, and she is doing a great job. That that page is, uh, she came out guns a-blazing, that's for sure, with that uh, that page. So it's a, it's a great follow on Instagram, at Lead Inclusion. Uh, as well as the website, www.leadinclusion.org is where you'll find all kinds of information uh, about Leanne, about associates, about trainings, about workshops, about all uh, publications, lots of great information there. So uh, Leanne, it was uh, great talking to you today. I really enjoyed it and I look forward to next time. Likewise, Tom. Thanks for having me. Okay, this week in Assessment Corner, I want to talk about the habits of learning. 
and offer five guidelines that schools can use to bring some credibility and some profile to the habits of learning once they get separated from achievement. Now, this came up in three different Zoom trainings I was conducting this week, so I thought it might be a good topic to come back to. We have touched upon this in previous episodes, but it's fresh in my mind, and I want to spend a little bit more time on it and specifically talk about those guidelines. So the first thing is to remember, uh, just before we get into those guidelines, remember that the big picture of any grading and reporting decision is that everything funnels towards accuracy, right? That we report accurately as to where a student is in their achievement and their habits of learning and, and their growth, not philosophy, okay? All of our decisions, they can't be guided by philosophy. It really doesn't matter what you think or philosophically believe. What matters is that your assessment and grading practices aligned with sound assessment principles, like sound principles of measurement. Now, one of my favorite Reminders of this comes from Susan Brookhart when she writes, quote, validity is in question when the construct to be measured is not purely achievement, but rather some mix of achievement and non-achievement factors, end quote. I use that quote a lot to kind of begin the conversation about the separation of achievement and the habits of learning. And I often, after presenting the quote that way, will paraphrase it in layman's terms. So I'll present the quote and then I'll say, if I were to paraphrase that, here's what I would say. The accuracy gets called into question when what you're measuring is not purely what I know and can do, but a mix of what I know and can do and how well behaved I am. So bringing that into that, you know, sort of layman's terms and trying to help people understand that separation. So the issue is not the question of whether or not the habits of learning are important. They are, and everybody agrees with that. It's a question of where they're taught, where they're nurtured, how they're developed, so that they become habitual for our students. So this leads me to the five guidelines. The first one is to stop referring to them as soft skills. There is a connotation and a kind of dismissiveness in the word soft that I think is unhelpful and even counterproductive. They're important, they're essential. So don't tell me how important they are and then dismiss them with a word like soft. Now. That may not be your intent. That may just be something that I sort of have added into that definition. Um, And I'm not saying you're wrong if you call them soft skills, but from my perspective, I don't think the label soft is helpful. You can hear the difference, right? You could call them essential skills. You could call them habits of learning. You could refer to them in the bigger picture of social competence. Or you could call them soft, right? Now, again... The connotation, you know, I I just don't like the word. And for me, we have a choice and that label just, it, it's something, again, this is just my perspective on it, but it's something that I think is important to get away from. Now, John Mag at the University of Nebraska in 2006 wrote that social competence is a general idiom referring to the adequacy of social functioning and that social skills are the specific behaviors targeted as part of social skills training. So for our students to become socially competent, the habits of learning are a part of that larger social competence, right? They need to learn those important skills. So think of social competence as the umbrella, uh, you know, functioning competently in, in a variety of social situations. And how we do that is through the development of specific social skills. And that's sort of underneath that umbrella. Now, of course, depending on the already existing norms in the school, in the context, You know, this will probably begin as a teacher-centered experience and then eventually move to a more self-regulatory model uh, as 
student competence grows. And we're going to talk about that momentarily. Okay, number two, be intentional and actually teach what you want. Now, first, let me speak to the, oh, you're just teaching compliance crowd. Okay, seriously, the word compliance has become this four-letter word. And I, I don't know what happened or where this occurred. For some reason, whenever you ask for a level of compliance, you're somehow trying to control students. Well, that might sound like a, a clever soundbite, but the last time I checked, we actually live in a society. We live in a community where there are agreed upon social norms. Okay, so one of the worst things going right now is this extremism when it comes to responding to terms. Like, for example, mention that there's a place for direct instruction and people act like all you want to do is lecture. Okay, the whole, it's, it's all about learning, not about teaching. Well, I would hope it's all about learning because one is an end, learning, and the other is the means, teaching. Uh, for me, this is a false dichotomy that just continues to get perpetuated online. We all, all of us, have to be compliant on one level or another when we live in a society. I'm sure the, oh, you're just teaching compliance crowd appreciates the fact that there's levels of compliance necessary when, for example, a student uses foul language directed toward them, right? We appreciate at that point that there's a social norm of not speaking to teachers in that disrespectful of a manner. Are, are we trying to control students or is this just part of our social functioning in the collective? Anyway, <laughs> okay, rant over. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just trying uh, I'm, you know, to, to navigate, I'm just tired of it. I'm try, trying to navigate through all the quote unquote cleverness and overthinking, you know, hashtag sarcasm, by the way, all the cleverness and overthinking that gets in the way of the real and authentic work that we need to do. Okay. We have established social norms. Like when you act in a way that is aligned with social norms, you are said to be acting in a pro-social manner. And you, if you act in violation of those social norms, it's antisocial, right? So now, what needs to be open for a renewed conversation is how inclusive and culturally responsive those social norms are. That's not only a fair conversation, but it's a necessary one. The whole sit, be quiet, only speak when you're spoken to, etc. that needs to be open for, for discussion. We know that the traditional ways of behaving in school come out of a very Eurocentric view of what good behavior is, I mean, we could go down this rabbit hole about how, you know, black, brown, and indigenous students are disproportionately disciplined because of their so-called poor behavior. Uh, we're not we're not going to go down that rabbit hole today, but but maybe we will another time for sure. But uh, everyone's needs need to be on the table, and we need to have a, an expansive view of of what quote unquote good behavior looks like in school. That's a fair conversation. So we want to teach what we want. And that means we want to develop and grow these behaviors uh, and, and attributes and habits of learning within our students. As I often say, punishing the absence of a skill doesn't produce the skills. So, so teach, even from a very early age, teach the social skills that we know will serve students well. And inside those social skills includes these habits of learning. Okay, so begin by identifying what the focus is. You're going to teach other things informally. But what are we collectively focused on in terms of habits that really serve students going forward? You know, respect, responsibility, work ethic, all of those things. Then think about what does it look like? Okay, what's the criteria? 
We're not trying to limit students, but we're trying to give them a point of reference, trying to say, this is an example. This is a, an example of what responsibility would look like or an example of what self-directedness would look like, but some students don't know. And then we follow up with feedback and reinforcement and redirection and coaching and all of that. And then we find ways to infuse that, um, you know, those habits of learning into instruction, whether it's in English language arts or social studies or PHE or what, whatever. Try to find ways to, to bring those to life in those classrooms, okay? So number two, be intentional and actually teach what you want. Number three is to focus on a small number of universally applicable habits of learning. So once we decide we're going to teach and be intentional about it, we want to focus on a small number. As I said, you're, you're going to informally teach and develop so many other different social skills in real time. That's just a natural part of our day-to-day -day work with students. So we want to identify some specific habits and attributes that we're going to go deeper on collectively that really are transferable throughout the school. Right? There might be some that are subject specific. So PHE, applied skills like shop classes have expectations, behavior, safety, etc. There's things we have to consider that are more sort of finite and acute in different, different classes. But as a school, we're going to focus on the school-wide approach that identifies those attributes such as, as I mentioned, respect, responsibility, self-directedness, work ethic, habits that we know will serve students in a variety of situations and circumstances. Now, of course, there are others. There's things like empathy and social responsibility, but I would not include those as part of the habits of learning simply because for me, the focus on the habits of learning specifically ultimately leads to assessment and some kind of reporting. And I really wouldn't want to get into the business of measuring and reporting on students' empathy. I, I think that that can be addressed in, in a, a whole host of ways other than kind of in a reporting process. So part of the other experiences, for sure, you're going to talk about empathy, social responsibility, all of those things. But the focus is really the separation, right? The separation is the separation. And empathy has never really been a part of traditional grading. Like, for example, you've never docked a student because of a lack of empathy. So for me, that's different. And that should be handled in a, a different circumstance or uh, a different situation as opposed to the habits of learning that we might be focused on. Okay, number four is to assess and report on them, all right? Most habits of learning, most characteristics, attributes that lead to learning are fairly binary, right? They are yes, no, can, can't, or did and didn't. Uh, there aren't usually three or four versions of, say, respect or responsibility, right? You either were respectful or you weren't. You were responsible or you weren't. So I think assessment is most effectively handled when we use a frequency scale, when we think about frequency or the consistency with which a student has demonstrated that sort of desired attribute or habit. Um, you could use, again, four levels might be consistently, usually, sometimes, rarely. Um, if you're only thinking about three, it could be often, sometimes, rarely. Uh, whatever you want. Again, the, the, the idea being that fewer, more distinguishable levels is more consistent, more reliable, uh, but it's up to you to decide how many levels you want to have. So we would have gradations that articulate how, I guess, embedded or habitual these characteristics and attributes are. That's, that's what the frequency scale would do. The one I wouldn't use is always, because that allows for no margin of error. Always, for me, is the exceeds of the student attribute world. It's an impossible standard for any adult to reach, never mind students. So living up to always 
allows you not one moment, not one hiccup. So I, I think it's a poor choice. So that's why I tend to lean toward the idea of consistently, usually, sometimes, rarely. So for something like responsibility, we might have criteria that says, you know, the student consistently manages their time and utilizes all available resources, holds themselves accountable to both academic and social expectations, and generally follows through by doing what they said they were going to do. Now, again, that's fairly sophisticated for very young learners, but you tailor the language to what is student-friendly. Uh, but again, that might be an example. And then you just swap out the words. So it might say that the student usually manages their time and utilizes all available resources, hold themselves accountable, et cetera, and so on. The student sometimes, the student rarely. Now, I think we do need to report on these habits of learning because as many of you have heard me say before, what adults pay attention to is what students eventually come to believe is important. So giving them the profile, sometimes you have to work with them instead of working against them. So if there's going to be a report, if there's going to be some articulation of where you are with these habits of learning, it can help build the profile and have students and families take them more seriously. And finally, number five is to make the transfer to self-monitoring and self-regulation the actual end goal. So ultimately, as you begin to build these habits of learning in the bigger picture, it leads us to the five aspects you know, of social-emotional learning, right? Self-awareness, self-management, the idea of responsible decision-making, social awareness, relationship skills, etc. This has to be the ultimate goal. You know, you, you may not be able to start with an SEL approach in your school. I mean, maybe you can, but, but that's the question to ask of your context, right? If, if social norms are high, meaning you have high rates of pro-social behavior, meaning that you have very few demonstrations of antisocial behavior where students are violating social norms, then beginning with an SEL approach is probably the right decision. You know, students can begin to develop those five competencies and you can hit the ground running. But if you work in a school where social norms are somewhat low or non-existent, then an SEL approach might be premature because you might need a more teacher-centered approach at the, at the beginning uh, just to embed those norms and then be able to build sort of the SEL competencies on top of that established foundation. I mean, ultimately, we want to reduce the amount of monitoring, right? For lack of a better word, we want to reduce the amount of monitoring students need and lead them toward independence. Uh, independence has to be the desired result, you know, so that students are engaged in goal setting, self-reflection, and, and even self-reporting once we have an established environment. So the ultimate goal here is to lead to self-regulation and, and self-monitoring. But I think the error sometimes, if, if I can say it that way, is that schools want to begin there but they don't have an established foundation of social norms, and therefore it's almost premature because there isn't a kind of consistency with which uh, the context functions, if you will. So just to review, for me, the five suggestions I would, I would give to most schools, all schools, if you will, around, and of course there's specifics that are needed here, but first, stop referring to them as soft skills because these are important skills. Two, be intentional and, and actually teach what you want. Don't leave anything to chance. If you, if, it, if you say it's important, then be intentional and purposeful about it. 
Number three is to focus on a small number of universally applicable habits of learning, right? You can go deeper with them. It's easier for the students to remember. They can, it can eventually lead them to goal setting. If you've got a list of 17 things or 19 things, it's, it's not, it's not something that they're going to be, be able to draw upon at a moment's notice. Number four, assess and report on them right? Sometimes you got to work with them and the report kind of sends the message to students and families that this also matters. Um, as many of you have probably heard me say before, I often say to parents, you know, your child's achievement grade is what gets them into university and college, but it's their habits of learning is that that's the reason they will graduate from, from university and, and, and college. So they, they both matter. Achievement matters, habits of learning matter, social competence matters, but they're just different. And number five, focus on the transfer to self-monitoring and self-regulation. That's the end goal, right? That those SEL competencies lead to independence. They lead to students becoming self-regulatory people, not just students, but they become self-regulatory people, okay? Now, as I said earlier, the devil is in the details, right? There's there's details to think about and nuances we have to think about with our context, but, I, but this is at least, I think, a view from 30,000 feet for a long-term plan for how you can support the separation of academic achievement from the behavioral characteristics or the student attributes that we know are important, but are simply different than what it is the students have achieved. Okay, that's all for today. A few announcements before we close out. A uh, reminder of the Achieve Institute which is the virtual institute focused on promising practices in instruction, assessment, and grading. That will be this coming August 16th through 18th. It'll feature myself, Cassandra Erkins, Nicole Dimich, and Katie White. So if you're interested in that event, uh, the Virtual Institute, head over to the solutiontree.com website for details. I've also added a link uh, to that event in the show notes. I also want to remind you of the summer series, and I want to say thank you to those of you who've already responded to the Google survey. Uh, but just a reminder that this June, July, and August, I'm going to do two things. One, we're going to move to an every other week format. So there'll be seven episodes this summer. And rather than the usual format, we're going to try to create this summer series focused on special or specific topics. So my goal would be to create a kind of roundtable discussion with multiple educators for a conversation on special topics or specific uh, areas of interest. And that will be the entire episode. So again, this is where you come in, uh, in the show notes, and I will tweet this out as well. There is a link to a Google survey where I've listed nine potential special topics. And I'd like you to, through the survey, rank those nine topics from one to nine in order of the topics you would like to hear about this summer. And so after you've done that ranking, there is also a section in the survey where you can add a topic that I didn't list. Um, I'm going to keep that survey open probably until the end of the month, and that'll kind of help me decide uh, what topics we're going to focus on uh, this summer. In September, of course, we'll get back to the usual format, but I thought it might be fun to do something a little bit different this summer, um, maybe not as time sensitive, um, and also a chance for you to have a little bit of listening downtime, and it gives me a little bit of downtime, and it's just something different to shake up uh, the regular routine of the podcast. So remember to follow the podcast Twitter account uh, for updates. That's at Tom Shimmer Pod. You can also follow me on Twitter. That's at Tom Shimmer. Shimmer Education on Facebook. Uh, Tom Shimmer Podcast on Instagram. Lots of places to connect. And also, a, again, a reminder to please email your questions for Assessment Corner uh, or any suggestions you have to the email address. That's TomShimmerPod at gmail.com. And, and don't forget to check out the YouTube channel as well. Lots of different videos being dropped there. Uh, this week, I just uh, loaded the video version of my episode 20 interview with Star Saxton, so you can check that out as well on the, the podcast YouTube channel. 
Next week, my guest is going to be Muhammad Khalifa. He is the author of the book, Culturally Responsive School Leadership. So that's going to be our focus for the interview. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course. And if you like the podcast, like what you hear, please don't hesitate to spread the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, etc. Have a great week, everyone. 